This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. Welcome back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. We're continuing our National Handicapping Championship theme this week in Episode 2. In fact, today is the kickoff of the NHC at Treasure Island in Las Vegas. 700 or so players will be vying for, among a slew, so to speak, of prizes, an $800,000 first prize. Sad to say, yours truly will not be among the contestants this year, but all of us horse players are dreamers, so as you can imagine, I'm already planning on how I will structure my play in the 2020 NHC. But going back to this year's NHC, the 20th annual contest, we talked with Keith Chamblin, COO of the NTRA last week, about the NTRA's role in producing this fantastic event and the year-long lead-up to it. This week, we're honored to have Chris Larmy join us to talk about the player's perspective on the NHC. Chris has been a longtime advocate for horse players and has been instrumental in the ongoing development of the NHC as one of the signature events for players every year. Chris also took the time to share a fantastic big score story with us. It's a long one, but it's very well told and very funny. I promise you the legend of the Cheeto will live on your memory long after you've listened to this big score story. All right, so joining us on the phone today is Chris Larmy. If you've ever been on the public handicapper site for any of their contests, you know Chris as Derby1592. We're going to let Chris tell us about the significance of that handle. If you've ever been to the National Handicapping Championship in Las Vegas, you know Chris is a many times qualifier for that event. And if you've actually ever roamed the halls of power in Washington, D.C., you may have seen Chris there, too, but that's a story for another day. Today is actually the kickoff of the National Handicapping Championship at Treasure Island in Las Vegas. Last week, we talked with the folks at the National Thoroughbred Racing Association about how they prepared for that event. This week, Chris is going to tell us why you want to be there, how to get there, and how to manage when you get there. So, Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Bill, for inviting me on the show. I enjoy listening to your podcast, and I'm excited to be a part of this one. Well, let's say uh, I, I, I'd like your, your uh, public handicapper uh, handle first, Chris Derby1592. Why don't you uh, tell people about that? I get a kick out of that. Well, the 1592 stands for 1 minute 59 and 2 fifths seconds, and that time represents Secretariat's Kentucky Derby winning time which was the fastest ever and is still the fastest ever. He also holds that same distinction for the Preakness and Belmont. So he actually set the record for all three races in his Triple Crown run. And, the, of course, the Belmont's still a world record. Oh, Chris, you and I share our love of that horse. Um, I will tell you that the, probably the YouTube video I've watched the most in my life is the uh, replay of the Belmont and Chick Anderson's call of it, especially, too, with just... Uh, Still sends chills up and down my spine every time, so I always love to see the Secretariat references. But uh, like I said, we're here to talk about the NHC. Uh, Chris, I, I qualified for the first time last year for the 2018 NHC, but um, you're one of those people that's qualified many times, and I'm actually reminded of the line from Rounders that Matt Damon uses uh, with his Gretchen Mall 
about, you know, what do you think, the, the people at the final table of the World Series of Poker, it's the same people every year. Do you think they're the luckiest people in the world? You know, his point is it's a skill game. It's not a luck game. And, and you've qualified for NHC, I think I heard you say one time, is this your 13th year qualifying? I think it is. It's either either this is my 13th or last year was my 13th. But it's it's there plus or minus one. All right. So for one timers like me, what's the secret, Chris? How do you do it? Well, you ha- well, it helps to be old. So you had no <laughs> what is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it actually has changed over time because you know, ten or fifteen years ago, it was certainly more difficult to qualify because there were no online contests and there was a limited number of on-site contests. So your opportunities to qualify were far fewer. And if you lived like me up in Washington state, your proximity to the contest wasn't very um, good. So it was definitely more of a challenge then. Um, Now we have quite a few more contests. Many more tracks are participating. There's all sorts of online opportunities. And there's the creation of the NHC tour, which actually gives you a mechanism for qualifying for the NHC without actually winning a contest or placing high enough in a contest to win a, a seat directly. You can actually win it by accumulating tour points throughout the year, which is a, another great option for people. Yep. Um, so there's a lot more opportunities. I think uh, the key is to you know commit to it a little bit, be willing to invest some time and, and resources, not necessarily a lot of money, but, you know, if you really put an effort in and have a plan and try to execute that plan throughout the year, I think your chances are pretty good if you really want it to qualify. Well, Chris, I can tell you as a points qualifier myself, I'm very grateful for that opportunity uh, because, you know, I was, I was able to obtain a number of placings that got me there last year, you know, without actually winning one. So that's actually, it's a, it's a nice, as you said, it's a nice avenue for people to get in just by, you know, like you said, accumulating some placings and seeing what happens. So, Chris, for people who have never attended, tell them what the whole experience is like, because I found it to be a, you know, just before I got there, you know, last year, I talked to uh, Ed Lawless, who unfortunately is now deceased, and Kelly Kelly Smith Lawless, and they said, Bill, once you're gone, you're going to want to go over and over again. So, if you don't mind, tell people what the whole experience is like, because once, you know, once I experienced it, I agreed with Ed and Kelly. Well, I'd really be curious to you as a rookie, you know, what your initial impressions were. I mean, because I've sort of lost that having been there many times. Just what did you see? You know, what was it that stuck out to you, you know, in your first visit? (laughs) So the question gets turned around on me. That's good. I like that. (laughs) You know, know, just the the camaraderie among people I thought was really, uh, you know, good to see. Uh, You know, I mean, everyone's in competition with each other, but it it was a fun environment. I mean, it, it really was a fun environment. And luckily, I had a chance to talk to a few people. I talked to Scott Carson. I talked to Ed and Kelly uh, beforehand. And one of the things I was really determined to do was to not get distracted by the noise. I mean, it's a huge ballroom packed with people. Uh, There's screens all around, uh, multiple races going off at any time. And I think it's, what, eight tracks that are, you know, have eligible races every day. And there's, what, seven mandatories and eight optionals, something like that, or 10 optionals. Um, So... At any particular time, there will be people screaming in the room, right, about this horse or that horse. And for me, one of the things I was really happy about was that I stayed focused on what I was there to do and the races and the horses that I was there to play or that I was interested in. Because 
it is an intense environment. It's a fun environment, but it's intense because there's all that noise going on. And I think the within the first hour of my first day there, there was a like a thirty-two to one shot that that won at Gulfstream, and the place was going crazy. And I was really happy that I had thought to myself ahead of time, don't get distracted by the noise, it, and don't try and chase the people that hit the thirty-two to one horse, right? Because it's a it's a two day thing. It's a it's a it, it is a little bit of a grind, right? Because you're there in Las Vegas, and you you have a million distractions there. Never mind inside the room, but outside the room, right? There's a million distractions. But you know, I felt like that scene from the old movie, The Paper Chase, where the kids lock themselves up before finals in their hotel room and they're just grinding through their their work. That's what I was. That's what I was doing, right? And I, uh, you know, in talking with Scott, one thing that I did that I think was important for me was I threw out four tracks that I just. I don't follow, I don't follow the circuits, I don't really know. So I focused on Tampa, Gulfstream, Santa Anita, Oakland. I really didn't, I followed the New York circuit, but I didn't really stick with that one because it's, you know, it was a, it was a rainy weekend at Aqueduct too, sort of a lot of scratches. I will say one, one of the things I was glad I did was I really, I talked with several people who had been before to understand what the environment was going to be like. I had the sense that if I walked in there without having talked to those people, I was just going to be fresh meat, right? Um... So I don't know if I've answered your question. Does that help? Yeah, well, I, I think it was great. And you hit on some really good points that I might want to just second. One is the camaraderie piece. It's sort of amazing, really, in that there's $3 million worth of prize money that the players are competing against one another for, but you really do sense a lot of camaraderie in the room. And, um, you know, it's like, those of us who have been in the racing game for a while, sometimes it's your day and sometimes it's not. So it's really fun even when maybe you aren't having a great NHC, but maybe a friend of yours or even somebody you just met that's sitting at the table with you is having, you know, a good uh, one yeah. or two days. You can kind of cheer for them and live vicariously through their success. As long as you're a person that can do that. Some people just, you know, can't do that. They, they are uh, obsessed or consumed with envy or, than a competitive piece, but I mean, there is a lot of camaraderie and a lot of friendships get made through contest play, um, lifelong friendships, really good friendships that you just never would have gotten together if it wasn't for contests. And NHC in particular is a place where you can meet people from all over the country that have a shared passion with you. And that's one of the really cool things about the NHC, I think. The other thing you hit on, I think is really important is the whole thing about just being prepared and um, avoiding the distractions because you hit it, you know, the nail on the head with people screaming right next to you about <laughs> some 30 to one shot. Um, you just can't let that bother you because that's going to happen you know, with six or 600 other players there. You're going to have any long shot. There's somebody in the room that will have it. They might not always be someone who screams at the top of their lungs, but there'll be a lot of energy in the room every time a long shot comes in. And you just can't let that distract you. You have to stay focused. And you really can't stay focused unless you have a game plan going in and you're prepared. So I think that's really important is to think about, you know, how are you going to approach it? What is your strategy? Get as prepared as you possibly can because it is it's actually a three-day contest if right. you do well. Right. right. And there's reasons for that. So you do need to be prepared and you do need to be, you know, ready to put in the work while you're there to be remain prepared and make adjustments if you need to. So that's really important. And your idea of 
Okay, one of the strategies that you went in there with is you said, I'm going to focus on the tracks that I'm most comfortable with. And that makes a lot of sense. I think in general, what you want to do is figure out what are your strengths? Where are you the best? It might be certain tracks. It might be certain types of races, whatever it might be that you focus on those, especially in the optional races where you get to pick the races you want to play, really zero in on the things that you know you're the strongest in. Avoid those, you know, try to downplay your weaknesses, but take advantage of the fact that there are mandatory races because that helps cut your work down. You know there's going to be eight races a day that you have to play. That can take, and all you have to do is come up with your optional plays each day, so you don't have to handicap every race from every track. You know, that's really hard to do. Being prepared, sticking to your plan, avoiding those distractions, playing to your strengths, those are all good things. to, to and, and mentioning, you know, talking to people who have been there before, that certainly helps as well. Um, so all that will help prepare you, you know, the first time you go, go. And then once you've gone the first time, you're going to want to get back oh, the yeah. second time. Yeah. And in, stop and think about, you know, learn as much as you can while you're there talking to people and, you know, just doing a self-assessment after the contest on, you know, what you could do to improve the next time you go. So, and just do that every year. And of course, if you do that and you're good at sort of evaluating your own performance and being self-critical, but in a constructive way, then you're bound to get better each time and improve your chances of winning going forward. You know, Chris, I, I think uh, you raised a really good point, too, about, you know, focusing on what your strengths are, understanding what your strengths are. I think one of the keys to being a good horse player is to understand where you have an edge or your insights are generally better than when they aren't. Now, you know, that does make it easy, I think, when you are preparing for each day. You can quickly scan through some races and say things like, uh, you know, a and say turf sprints are not my specialty. Uh, you can also toss out things like uh, small fields, right? Because they're unlikely to offer any any value. But I, I will say that one thing I found, and I think the tracks have actually kind of geared their racing programs around the NHC on that weekend because there were actually very few small fields, I felt like. Maybe maybe last year was an aberration, but I felt like there were very few small fields that you could throw out. There were big fields everywhere. So understanding where you're good and where you're out was even more important with those large fields. Yeah, I am. Um, you didn't mention this, but I'm actually the chairman of the NAC's Players Committee, and we we advise the NTRA on things like format and rules and stuff like that to try to keep improving the the contest every year. So I uh, that's why I was really interested in in what your first impressions were because we're trying to make this as fun and enjoyable as possible and encourage more people to get involved in NHC. And the reason I bring this up is. You know, I know some of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, and we actually work pretty closely with Santa Anita to try to make sure that, like, the, because on the final day, the last couple of races are always at Santa Anita just right. because of the way the racing schedule works. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they make sure that those last couple of races are good good races to handicap and play um, just to help, um, you know, it would be a dud if that last race was a five-horse race right, with a one-to-nine right, shot kind of right, thing. Right, right. Um, right. Uh, so there are some of the things like that, and and um, uh, you know we can't really control the cards, but that's the eight tracks they pick. Part of the reason they choose those are are they, a lot goes into that, but it's like trying to get the best racing, 
have it broad geographically so we don't favor, you know, West Coast versus right. East Coast. Um, and um, also taking account because of that time of year, you know, the weather can intervene and there's almost inevitably going to be maybe a track that cancels or, you know, races coming off the turf and stuff. So you want to have enough of selection of races so that people have some options if that happens. So a lot goes into that and also in, in selecting the mandatory races for the, the contest as well. You know, Chris, we talked a, a little bit about the preparation and, um, you know, as you observe correctly, it's a, it's a three day contest, right? Cause after two days, the field is cut down and you have the semifinal round, if you will. Um, and then the, you know, the final table, um, I, I will say my own experience in preparation, you know, it's three days and you're you're governed by when the past performances are available, first of all. And second of all, you're governed by I got to play today before I worry about, you know, too much about tomorrow and then the next day. So my own personal experience was that I, I felt 100 percent prepared for day one. I think uh, when I went back to my room that night, of course, the first thing I did was I focused on the mandatories and then I started skimming through to find optional place, but I, I was probably about 80% prepared for day two, right? It, it, the, the way I would normally like to be prepared for a, for, for a card. And, and I finished, uh, I think, I think I finished 168. Um, so I was out of the top 70, but I, I remember thinking to myself, man, if I was in the top 70, I don't know, it, it's got to be really tough to rally for that last day, knowing through that you're going to go through you know, another round before you get to the, the, the final table. Yes, that, in that, um, that third day, um, sort of separates the, the winners from the losers if you're still in contention, but it is, there are some things you can do. One is one thing nice about the morning on the third day. Um, for those who don't make the cut, there's an, a, a consolation mm-hmm. contest. And for those that are still in, um, you have to pick 10 optional races. There's no mandatory races. So basically all you need to handicap are 10 races. So at least you can then cut the work down some on that third day in the morning um, and focus in on your strengths. Um, the downside is, you know, Sunday morning, uh, there's not the, the quality of racing is not the same as it is on Saturday afternoon. So you have a little bit of a limit, limited selection. But at least you can cut your work down that way. But it certainly um, favors people who tend not to spend, you know, if you're someone who likes to spend two hours on a race, uh, you're going to be you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. On that third yeah. day in the NHC, where if you're somebody who, you know, spends five minutes on a race typically, um, uh, that's probably not a big issue for you. Um, Typically, most of us are somewhere in between those extremes, but um, it definitely forces you to um, be selective about which races you're going to focus on and maybe streamline your handicapping process a bit, um, especially if you tend to be, you know, very labor intensive and you look at replay, you know, a whole bunch of replays, that sort of thing. Now, some of the people I know, you know, who are really serious players, um, and like to do that sort of more lengthy in-depth handicapping process, one of the things that they do, kind of it's a normal handicapping process, but in particular they focus on the NHC. You know, they watch a lot of replays ahead of time, and they have a horses-to-watch list, and they're hoping some of those come up 
you know, on the contest days, um, which they don't have to go back and watch. Right. They've got notes and everything. And, and so, you know, that's one thing you can do um, is sort of be handicapping the, the circuits you plan to play in advance and, you know, maybe trying to make a list of some horses that you're really interested in if they come back and, and taking some notes and stuff that will help save you time, uh, you know, on the actual race day when the fields are drawn. Yeah, but, you know, I've, I actually have never had too much luck in having the watch list horses hit on contest day for whatever reason. But it, but it's a good, it's actually a good point if you've got a horse kind of loaded into your watch list that you know had significant trouble that was understated or you know whatever. Um, you know when they pop up that day, yeah, I, I got to believe that that takes a lot of uh, uh, time out of it. And, and basically, I would imagine. Like you said, you got to kind of be looking for shortcuts on that on that last day, right? Uh, you you can't be. I'm usually thirty minutes, forty minutes on a race. Um, I would imagine on that last day, uh, you 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 can't be you know you can't be doing that deep dive. You got to be looking for shortcuts, like you said, right? Yeah. Although if you can say thirty minutes a race, ten races, that's three hundred minutes. If you're willing to put five hours in at night, you know that, or in the morning you could do it, but you have to be disciplined, right? Because like you said, there's lots of distractions <laughs> in Las Vegas. And now maybe if you're sitting in third place going into the final day, it's not hard to set those aside. But, um, you know, if you're down the list, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. although the money is, is not bad. I mean, if you make the top, if you make that final table, the top 10, it's guaranteed 50,000. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's significant. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I can focus your um, attention a bit, but you're, I think part of the contest is it really is a marathon, not a sprint. And um, this is the way I, when we talk about contests, I mean, if you were in my role as sort of the chairman of the NHC Players Committee, people have comments about how to improve uh, the contest or the NHC tour. And I, I say that um, with a little bit of a smile on my face. I mean, a lot of times it's just plain complaints or venting. I hear a lot of that. <laughs> I would um, imagine. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's, you know, this is nothing like a day at the races. And I, that's one I hear a lot. Um, uh, you know, I, that people would never play that horse on a regular day at the races. Um, and what I, you know, there's not necessarily a good response. But what I say is, if what you want to experience is a day at the races, which is great, I do that all the time, then, then go to the races and bet. Right. But, right. but a, a handicapping contest, it's, it's a game. That's what it is. And we have the, we lo everybody loves games. They're fun. Um, at the, the social part is fun. You know, the competitive part is fun. That's what games are. That's why we, you know, all of us love games. We might love different types of games, but in essence, it's just, it's just a set of rules that everyone follows and you play it and you see who comes out on top. And that's exactly what any handicapping contest is. So what you have to do is just understand what the rules are and how you can, you know, what are, are what you need to do to optimize your chances of winning the game. And it's within the context of the rules and based on the rules, you know, optimal behavior will look quite different um, in one game versus another. And, so in the NHC, you just have to understand the rules, understand, you know, what your strengths are and come up with a, a strategy that optimizes your chances of winning. And it's probably not going to be the exact same behaviors you would, you would exhibit at a normal day at the races. And that's not the intent. Um, 
we that there's no value added in that. You know, anybody can go to the races and bet. So we don't need contests for that. That's a great part of racing. You can do that at any day you want. But the contests bring in this whole competitive piece, the whole social piece. You know, I call it, and then plus you still have that basic handicapping puzzle that drew most of us, including myself, into racing. I mean, we all love to solve puzzles. And to me, the most fascinating puzzle there is, is is handicapping a horse race. So you've still got that as a foundational piece, but now you add in the competition and the social part of being in a contest. And to me, it's like the Reese's peanut butter cup of contest. You've got, you know, the the peanut butter, which is the handicapping, and you've got the chocolate, which is the the competition and and social aspects of contest. You put them together and you got that delicious Reese's peanut butter cup, <laughs> and that is my favorite candy Reese, by the way, Chris. <laughs> you know, it's like it's heaven for a horse player. I mean, you get it all in one nice little package, and it's not supposed to be the same as just going to the races and betting. That's never been the intent. Um, so just accept that and embrace it, and have fun with it, and figure out how to win the game. You know, that's that's my response when I hear those complaints. No, and you know what? I think that's a really good response because when I first started getting into contest play, I m- made that mistake. I imagine a lot of people do that. Uh, you know, it's just like handicapping, right? Okay, well, this is the horse that I think is going to win. That's who I, I'm going to bet. But as you said, you know, the rules of the contest determine you know what your strategy should be. And I was fortunate enough that I spent a lot of time at some New York contests, and you know, there's some some big players there. Uh, and you know, it finally dawned down to me after several contests that like the same people showing up on the leaderboard, the top of the leaderboard all the time, it's, it's like the line I said from rounders, right? It's not coincidence and it's not accidental. They're doing something that I'm not thinking about. Right. So, you know, back to your point about being you know, self examining, okay, what am I not doing here? And what do I need to be doing? And, and you hit on the really important one, right? Is understanding what the rules are of the contest and then you adjust your play uh, accordingly and 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 so you know take the NHC for instance um, if you're late in day two and you're you know 200 from the cut line uh, you're gonna be playing horses that you might not play with real money but that's not it's not real money and that's not what this contest is exactly so it's silly for you to play a, a you know a two to one shot that you might be betting with both fists at the track in that in that contest in the contest. That doesn't mean the contests are bad. It just means there's a whole layer of tactical, strategic thinking that you have to put on top of your normal handicapping. It makes it even more challenging and more fun, but definitely different. But that doesn't mean it's it's not as good. Or that it's better, it just means it's different. And for some people, that additional challenge, the additional thinking, the additional strategy, the game, even game theory when it comes down to the very end and you're competing against a few people for the, the title, I mean, all of that can come into play. And that, to me and many people, that's very appealing. Now, if you just don't like games or that's just too much or to think about, then maybe contests aren't for you. But most people that I um, that I know that have, played the contest you know that that those additional things make it fun um and sometimes it can be frustrating and 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 the rules have evolved in the nhc and i've been a a big part of this um the format and rules have kind of evolved to try to make it as as 
you know, sort of fair and um, takes some of the luck out of it that you might have and certain formats might be more dependent on, you know, luck. We try to make it a mix so that everyone feels like when they get there, they actually have a chance, even though clearly some people are more likely to win than others. If it's your weekend, even if you're not, you know, one of those guys whose names always show up near the top of the leaderboard, if this is your weekend, you might just win it all and win the big money. We want people to feel like they have a chance, but we also want to make it enough of a test so that you can't just get lucky. You have to actually be lucky and combination of luck and, and skill um, to win it all. And that's sort of the reason we went to three days and added cuts and went to a final table um, to kind of get away from people just, you know, the word you hear a lot of stabbing. Stabbing. <laughs> I was going to say. Yep, 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 yep. Um, because with the cut lines, you're usually not that far out of it where you just have to start stabbing. And if you And with the cut lines, the people who are far behind are no longer in the contest. So you don't have the people in there stabbing away. You have to kind of earn your way through each gate, and it, it sort of takes that stabbing piece out. And one hitting one thirty to one shot's not going to win the contest. Right, right. I mean, oh, oh, you know, you have to make, you know, sixty plays to win the contest, and you're not going to win it with one. So, you've got to gr- grind it out to some extent. You're 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 not going to win with a bunch of short prices, but you can't win it with one or two long shots. So, the the rules have all evolved to try to make it this sort of combination of luck and skill. Everyone has a chance, and then. The other thing I try to emphasize about contests, in particular the NHC, is we're trying to make this sort of a a broad test of of your skill. We don't want to make, you know, the biggest golf tournament in the world, everything's, they're all par fives, dog leg left, right? (laughs) Um, We want to have some long holes and some short holes and some that go right and some that go left. and some with all kinds of hazards and some that really play the big hitters. We're trying to make force you out of your comfort zone. So you can't just play the races you like. You can do that to, to some degree with the optional plays, but you're forced to play tracks that you may not normally play, play types of races you may not normally play because it's supposed to test your ability to handicap across a broad spectrum of racing, not just, become a specialist, which might be exactly the way to make money in a, you know, the real world of playing the races and which is great. I mean, some people may bet only one kind of race at one track and they make a profit, which is great, but that just doesn't seem like the ideal um, qualification for the person to win the NHC. We want you to sort of be tested across the whole racing landscape. So that was the other thing we try to try to strive for with the format and with the, the mandatory races is try to force everybody out of their comfort zone to some extent. So the more broader your set of skills, um, the more, um, the better off you are in terms of your chances of winning. You know, Chris, I'm reminded when you talk about that, of the line, I forget which official of the United States Golf Association said it, but there was there's always criticism about the U.S. Open and the difficulty of the setup of the course, right? And he said, our goal isn't to humiliate the best players. Our, our goal is to identify the best players. And and, and, and I think that's, that's fair to say here. And, and, you know, when you're in Las Vegas, or you're at the NHC, you are with six, 700 of the best players out there. And, and going back to the camaraderie for a second, 
one of the things I got out of it also um, that was really important was just listening to how other people came up with the selections that they did, right? I mean, none of us are in a position where we know everything, right? There's always, whether it's in life or in horse racing, handicapping, you can always learn more. And it was really fascinating to me to hear the people that I was at the table I was with or just conversations around me, how people came up with this horse and that horse. And, I, you know, I can't say that everyone I agreed with, but, you know, a couple of them I thought, or a few of them, I thought, well, okay, that's something I hadn't considered before, and 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 that I think is another benefit of, of of being in it is just the ability to sharpen your play because you hear, you know, what some of the other really good players out there are doing. Absolutely, I mean that that's part of the the really cool part of this game is that there's no right way or single way of being successful. You can do it in a lots of different ways, and. Um, it is pretty amazing and, and interesting and useful to, to listen to other people who are willing to share. And there are a surprising number of people like that at the NHC, you know, how they approach it and, you know, what they emphasize. And there absolutely you can learn, in particular, not just in their handicapping, but in their approach to the contest. And, you know, why did they look for that type of horse, you know, in the contest and how that might be different than what they would look at on a normal day of racing. I mean, you can learn so much from that. Um, and I, you know, to me, even in normal playing and you've been playing for a long time and you can chime in on this to me, you know, if you're not changing, you are dying in this game. Right. I mean, there is no way that you can just continue to handicap the same way for an extended period of time and be successful. I mean, I have changed so much over the years um, in my approach. And um, I think I'm a better handicapper now than I ever was. And I felt feel like I've been very successful throughout, but um, it's, I feel like I'm better, but I'm not necessarily, and I definitely go differently, but I'm not necessarily doing better from a success standpoint. It's just, some of the things that used to be very profitable 20 years ago aren't profitable today. And so I had to shift to looking for other ways to identify value, um, even in my normal play. Um, so to me that, you know, constantly trying to learn new things from others, you know, learn about new tools that you can use and also just being self-critical and evaluating your own performance and, and, understanding, you know, you know, when you're getting better or worse and when things aren't working that used to work. I mean, you have to do all that on an ongoing basis to, to be successful long-term. And that's a really interesting point, Chris, about evolving your game. I mean, when I first started getting serious about this, I was, uh, I, I was referred to it as like pace and response, let's say, for, for experienced horses. Like, what is the pace likely to be of today's race and what's the response going to be, right? So it was almost purely a number crunching exercise. And, and then I found, you know, and, you know, obviously had some success with that, you know, but then I discovered the value of watching replays. Right. And so, you know, now things that don't show up in the number crunching exercise, like, wow, watching a replay, you know, what do you get out of that? But it, I, I think no matter what you are doing, it's easy to get in a, in a rut as well. And I would say for myself over the last year or so, just talking about evolution, one of the things that I realized is that even with number crunching and watching replay, sometimes it just needed, I needed to be able to look at a horse's past performances and, and create a narrative about the last seven or eight races and why this race might today be the one that fits. Um, even though 
maybe doesn't on the numbers and the replays are inconclusive. Um, and, and, you know, that comes down to things like, you know, let's say trainers and, and, and jockeys and stats like that. But just sometimes just almost said this is going to sound weird, and almost mystic, but like trying to get some aura of what's going on here today that might lead me to a conclusion I wouldn't have made before. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but that's, you know, one thing that I've realized I need to do more of. I think you made several good examples. One, just the, um, the pace piece. Um, I, I, like you, I used to um, focus on pace quite a bit and I'm a, I'm a math guy. So I, you know, was taking a numeric approach to that. And I had a real edge for a while where um, I could find horses that had a big pace advantage and I could get prices on those horses um, just based on those numbers alone. But then um, those pace data sort of became more available mainstream and that value just sort of evaporated to some extent. The same with watching races. You know, there was a time where you could find uh, a horse that has a tough trip on a turf race and get a big price on him next time out. Now it's almost like they get over bet. Everybody, exactly. Everybody sees it. Replays. (laughs) And almost all the, the local experts, you know, that, that's what they focus on to share with their listeners who don't necessarily want to watch all the replays. So, you know, it's all that again, the value evaporates. And I, to me, that's what paramutual wagering is all about. You're in competition with everybody else. And in order to get an edge, you need either some information they don't have, or you need to have some way of interpreting the data that's really available in a way that's different than most people interpret that data, you know, sort of a contrarian approach to have an edge. And that is just not a static world. It's not a static world. It's shifting all the time. People that how, what information is available and how people use it and what they focus on that keeps shifting over time. And if you're not aware of that and don't make adjustments, then um, you're not going to continue to be successful, even if you might've been in the past. And, you know, I, I just think that's part of the, challenge but it's part of the fun in that you can't just you know sit you've got to continue to learn if you're like me and that's my favorite thing is to learn and and experience new things and learn from them and just try to um keep improving and if you're like that then it's great if you really want to just continue to do the same thing forever it's going to be really difficult um if you're not willing to learn and adjust as things change over time Chris, you've been a great guest. I really enjoyed your time talking about the NHC. We we wish you the best of luck. While you're in Las Vegas, we want you to take advantage of a gift that expresses our appreciation for your participation in the podcast. And we're going to give you a $25 player credit at the Sands Casino. So, you know, go and hit that blackjack table and maybe you can catch a Dean Martin show also, all right? Oh, maybe they'll take that long anchors. <laughs> Here we go. All right. Thank you, Chris. So Chris also shared with us a well-told, memorable big score story. If I was going to put it to music, I think the Ballad of Nachito would rival Lorne Green's classic Ballad of Ringo, but let's let Chris be the star here. See what I did there? Ringo, be the star, get it? Pretty good, right? Anyway, Chris, take it away. The setting for this is long ago. This is so long ago that it was back before the Internet, before simulcast wagering. Oh, my gosh. Um, Caveman days. Yeah. This, yes. This yeah. is when, you know, your your only information came in the racing form, um, and you had to wait 
if you were like me, you had to go to the local 7-Eleven and wait sure. on Friday night yeah. for the, <laughs> the, tr- the truck to show up and unload the racing form so you could start handicapping for Saturday morning. Um, you couldn't download things. You couldn't bet on anything but your local track. The wagering menu where I played at Rito Downs, which many of the listeners maybe have never heard of, it's a small track in Arizona. Okay. Uh, they still run there now for a while. They stopped running, but they're back at the time. You know, it was, it was still had been running for quite a while. And, you know, this is back when racing was doing a little better overall than it is today. Um, but at that track, you had one place showing exact wagering. That was it with some daily doubles on the first two and the last two races. Mm, right. You know, right. Right. So right. The old can, days. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you compare that to, to today where you can, can bet on all over the world, 24 hours a day. And, you know, in the convenience of your home, uh, watching races on TV or streaming them live, you can download all kinds of information on past performances either right before a race or hours before a race. I mean, it was quite a bit different back then um, in terms of kind of the landscape that you were playing in. So I was playing at Rito. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you, this was so long ago that Bob Baffert was the leading trainer at Rito Downs. Oh, wow. Place. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> um yeah, that same Bob Baffert. And he, mo- he, I don't think he trained a thoroughbred. I think it was all quarter horses at the time. Oh this gosh. was a mixed meet of quarter horse and thoroughbreds. And he had some really good quarter horses at the time. So anyway, that's the setting. Back then, I'm going to college. My brother's going to college. I just got involved in horse playing because he got involved in racing more on the breeding side to the extent where he actually joined the racetrack industry program at the University of Arizona. And through him, I met some of the guys from New York and Chicago and L.A. that had been involved in racing. And they kind of introduced me to, you know, handicapping races. I learned a little bit from them. And I started playing with it. Um, I was a math guy. I was a math major, engineering major in, in college. So when I, as soon as I started playing and I looked at the daily racing form, you know, I was just thinking, how in the world do people use this information because how do you compare one horse to another? I mean, they're all running to different distances, different tracks, um, you know, different days. It's just how, how can you compare, you know, this race to this race? And, um, so to me being a math guy, I said, I need some, some, what I call a normalized number that I can use as a basis to compare the horses. So that led me to start, making my own speed and pace figures. Now they were really crude. No one taught me how to do it. Um, I don't, this might've been before Bayer wrote his book. If it wasn't, it was close. It was only a few years after and I hadn't read it, but so it was, they were far from perfect, but this was at a time again, when you didn't have any speed figures in a racing form, they weren't readily available. And I'm pretty sure I was the only person at Rito downs that was making speed and pace figures <laughs> on those races. So even though they were really crude and I, I did not know that much about handicapping. I, I knew I didn't know a lot. I had a lot to learn, but I probably thought I knew more than I really did. Um, but it was, it, it was at a time where if you were willing to put in that kind of work, uh, you know, do your own speed figures or really study trips or biases or whatever it is, you could get rewarded for it because 
you'd have information that could give you an edge over most of the people out there where today most of that kind of information is fairly readily available. You might have to pay for it, um, but it's out there. And so you don't have, you know, you can't necessarily get paid off the same way you could back then. So I think back then, if you put some work in, even if you weren't the best handicapper in the world, you could still get an edge. And, and so that was kind of my approach. I was pretty much just playing speed figures. And um, I was actually doing pretty well. I was a broke college student. Um, I typically would bet less than $10 in a race because um, I didn't have a whole lot to bet, but I was making a profit and cash and tickets enough to keep me interested. So with that background, uh, there was a horse where my brother and I are watching a race um, and we're looking at the horses in the paddock before the race. And this is in Tucson where it doesn't rain that often, but when it does, it can really pour. Mm. And right as they're saddling them up, the, a torrential downpour comes down and uh, by the time the horses go to the starting gate, the track is soup. I mean, the, the track isn't really made to hold a lot of water because of the climate. And it, it had, it was hit with a lot of water. It was about as soupy as a track could get. Um, so we watched the race and we had a few dollars bet on a horse and nothing real interesting happens. It's a, it's a six furlong race around two turns. It's a bullwing. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, heading into the first turn, not a whole lot happens. On the backside, not a whole lot happens. But when they go into the second turn, this one horse eases out. It's a horse named Nichito. And he just swallows up the field on the turn like they were standing still. And he just opens up in the stretch and he wins as easy as a horse can win. And there was nothing in his past performances that would lead you to believe that he had that kind of performance in him. So. Uh, there was a couple more races that day, and then we went home, and I made my speed pick. I used to just do them in the evening right after the races, and it only took me like an hour to do it. And I would do my figures, and he earned the biggest figure I ever had given a horse. So that got me, re- that got me really excited because, you know, that was, the, that was how I handicapped the races is these speed figures. And here I had this horse who was in like a middling race, and he ran the fastest figure I'd ever seen. So he could beat any horse. He would have beat any horse that had ever raced that I'd ever seen race at Rito um, in, in that race, but it was on a sloppy track. Um, now, uh, so it could have been a sloppy track that moved him up. He had never ran on one before he had a new trainer um, for the last couple of races that could have something to do with it, but I didn't really care at the time. You know, I, I felt like I had enough of an edge. Sometimes these horses will flop, but they'll win often enough. I'm getting enough value that they're good long-term bets. So I was, you know, just dying for re- for Nichito to run back. And two weeks later, he's entered in a race. This was back when horses used to run. When they ran every two weeks, right? <laughs> every two weeks. If they, if, they, if, if they hadn't run in the last month, something was wrong. Right, um, right. So that, that's another way racing quite Changed. a bit different than yeah back then um so uh he's in it was a normal fast track um i i didn't go crazy because i you know i was smart enough to know the sloppy track might have had a lot to do with his race um i mean they used to have these mud stars on horses that were good in the mud and racing for him i don't think they have them anymore i don't um, know (laughs) no and that was important because back then you would only get 
the last 10 races, you didn't get lifetime PPs. Yep. And um, a horse might have had some good races in the mud that you couldn't see on his last 10 races. So the mud star would kind of tell you, hey, you might not see this, but this horse has run well in the mud before. Um, uh, you know, so that's just another example of how things are different. So anyway, he runs. I bet more than I normally would. Like I said, I normally didn't bet more than $10 a race, and I think I probably bet and maybe twenty or thirty dollars on him to win, mm-hmm. uh, and he wasn't a big price because he come off he come off that big win, and he didn't win. He kind of ran a, basically back to the figures he had been running before. Okay, um, the sloppy track race. So I wasn't too disappointed. You know, I was hoping he would run big just like a cash, but I said, you know, that's okay. I'm just going to wait for him. You know, hopefully. Um, He'll ca- he'll run again when there's a, a sloppy track before the meet's over, and I'll cash in on him. And in the winter time, it, it doesn't run rain that often, but it rains often enough where you can count on it raining some. So I was just hoping, you know, because he does probably run every two weeks, I'll catch him. And he runs two or three more times on a fast track. Doesn't really get, um, you know, doesn't pretty much runs the same race that he always does, and then. Uh, then there's a, a day when he, he's going to run and it's raining the night before and the entries come out and there's Nachito and oh, I'm saying, this is, this my, is my day. <laughs> this is my day. This is what I've been waiting for. Nachito is back in the mud. And even better, because that downpour had happened right before the race, the track was listed as fast for his big win. Oh, no way. Up as a muddy no track. way. Oh, my gosh. Um, um, so he doesn't have a big, his big win on the mud. It just looks like kind of this aberration in the middle of his form. And, and unless you remember that day, um, uh, it wasn't real obvious. So it was pretty buried. So I'm really excited. And, and I, this is the time where I decide I'm going to, I'm going to really step out. And I, I didn't have a lot of money. So I was going to bet $50 to win on him in this race, which was a lot of money for me. Sure. Um, broke college student and i mean to put things in perspective i think tuition for a semester was like twelve hundred dollars then so fifty dollars was a lot more then than it is today and especially for a college student so we go to the track and it, and it does and it's raining and it's soupy and my brother and i are jacked up you know my this is i am as excited as i've ever been to watch a race and they they load up and they open up the gates and the Cheeto goes to his knees right oh, out of the no. gate. And he almost unseats his rider. Somehow the rider stays on. Somehow he gets his feet back in the irons. But by the time they hit the first turn, he's 10 lengths behind the rest of the horses. And they go on the backside, and he makes up a little ground. Looks like he's still moving. He didn't get eased or anything. Um, but, you know, I'm totally depressed at this point. And, you know, I've gone through that. We've all been there. You know, our horse has a bad start. You know, we have no chance. But then all of a sudden, he starts to move going as they head to the second turn. And all of a sudden, I have that little bit of glimmer of hope, right? <laughs> oh, maybe he's so good. He can still win this race. <laughs> so he's moving on. He's obviously moving faster than any other horses. And then for some reason, the rider decides he's not going to go around horses. He's going to cut the corner. Oh. And for a second, it looks like he might do it. He passes a couple horses. But then a, a rider shuts him off, and he almost clips heels. He slams on the brakes. He shuffles back, and he's dead last again by the time they come out of the turn. And, you know, they re-rallies, but he's 
off the board. He, he gallops out past the field, but they, mm. they didn't pay me for the gallop out. <laughs> and it was like a, it was a total gut punch. Oh, God. I mean, I just, it was my low point at that time as a horse player. I'm thinking to myself, my God, if I can't, you know, that, that kind of thing is going to happen in this situation. Maybe you can't beat this game. Maybe I'm wasting my time. You know, maybe this should be just another passing fancy and I ought to move on to something else. I mean, I was going, basically, I was in that worst player's uh, cycle of grief oh, yeah. at the anger stage, right? <laughs> and I'm, and, and I went, I, then, then I, then I'm kind of go into the depression stage, you know, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I, I didn't even make speed figures that weekend. Oh man. Um, wow. I'm debating on whether I'm even going to go to the races next week. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I kind of work out of that and I get to that hope and I go, you know what? There's still a couple months left. Nichito could come back in the mud and I could get it all back. And then a bunch more. So I kind of hit that, you know, hope stage. Yep. So I, I got through it <laughs> quickly. It sounds like, yeah, you got the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because if you know me, I'm, I'm naturally pretty optimistic. So, you know, it, but this was a true gut punch, in the, and we've all been there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some of us uh, deal with it better than others. But I, I got through it, and lo and behold, it's like the last few weeks of the meet, and the Cheetos in, in a race, and it had been raining all Friday, and, it, and the forecast was for rain all weekend. And so this was my chance. You know, and Cheetah was in, and this was going to be my, quote, big score, unquote. Um, this was it. I was going to go for broke. And by that, I mean my brother and I had this giant jar. It wasn't like a mason-sized jar. It was, like, bigger than a milk carton. And we put all our change in that jar all year long. And most of mine came from the track when I cashed all these $2, $4, $6 tickets and so by the time we got down the meet, that thing was pretty full. And our, our pact was we would find the perfect horse, and we were going to bet the jar on that horse. Okay. That was bet going to be our, our chance like for the it. big score. Yeah. We call it the, the BTJ horse, the bet the jar <laughs> horse. And there was no doubt in our minds, you know, cheating a Cheeto with the jar horse. So we spent that evening rolling, rolling coins. Rolling coins, right. <laughs> You couldn't, like, dump a bunch of change down at the supermarket right. in the machine and get your money. You had to roll them in the pennies and nickels and dimes and quarters. You had to sign your name on it and take it to the bank. And so we did it that morning, which we had, fortunately, our bank was open on Saturday morning, which wasn't very common in those days. So we did all that, and we had $168.20, and it was all going on the cheetah. Oh, Wow. And so this was a lot of money and this was, this was it. You know, this, we had been yeah. waiting all meet for this play. This was going to be it. So we go to the track and we look, we go before the race and there's some and I could swear he looked happy. <laughs> I mean, he was yeah. in his element, you know, and, and, you know, I was, this was it. This was, this was going to be the day. So we went up to bet and this again, another difference back then in the day, was you didn't go up and bet on these computerized tote machines. You had different windows with different little mutual ticket denominations. You had like a $2 window, which is where I lived and most of us did. But you had like a $10 window, and then you had the $50 window. And I had never been to the $50 window. So we were going to make sure we were going to the $50 window. 
for one thing, if you go to a two-hour window and bet hundred dollars, you got to punch it fifty times. You know, boom, 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 and you get fifty a stack of two hours. <laughs> fifty tickets. tickets we right. thought that would be kind of fun, <laughs> but we thought it would be more fun to go to the fifty-dollar window. So we were going to milk this for all that we could, and we go up to the fifty-dollar window, and it's a very short line, which it usually was. Yep. Um, and we get there, and it's that nice old graybeard teller, the guy that's been doing it for forty years. He's the senior guy. And he probably has said this a hundred thousand times. So we get up there and he goes, uh, and he's real nice about it. He goes, sorry, son, this is, you have to bet $50 at this window. You, you need to go to the windows over there where it says $2. So, um, I'm having fun with this part. We're both my brother and I both, if I go, Oh, you mean I have to bet $50 at this window? And he goes, yeah, that's a, that's correct. And I go, you mean I can't bet more than $50? <laughs> and he, and he, looked, he looked at me kind of funny and he said, of course you can bet more than $50. And I said, okay, well, I, I'd like to bet $100 to win on the three horse. And he said, you're sure you want to bet $100 to win three horse. And he kind of waited. And I go, yeah, I go, yes. And he kind of waited for me to show the money because he didn't want to punch these tickets. I don't know how you canceled tickets back then, but it's probably, well, it was probably hard too. Yeah. He <laughs> He wanted to make sure I really had $100. So I give him $100, and he punches two $50 win tickets. Uh, I said, thank you. And then I said, oh, and can you give me a $50 exacta 3-1? And then he looks at me and goes, a $50 exacta 3-1? I said, yes, sir, a $50 exacta 3-1. He goes, okay. And he punches the ticket, and he said, I wish you the best of luck, son. And I said, son. thank you, sir. Yeah. I feel I feel lucky today. <laughs> and um, then we raced over and got her. We still had um, $18 to bet. So we went and bet that. We had 20 cents left over. We tipped the teller at the CR <laughs> window 20 cents. <laughs> Which was a big number then, too. <laughs> yeah, we, we had it all down on the Cheetos' nose. Um, so we go down to the rail to watch the race. Um, and my heart is pounding. Oh, yeah. You know, it's hard. It's oh, yeah. harder than the first time I, I had my first kiss. You know, it's <laughs> like it was thumping in my chest. Because <laughs> um, uh, all I could remember was Machito going to his knees out of the gate the last time he runs up. This time they open up the gates, and the one horse shoots the lead just like I thought he would because he was clearly the pace horse in the race, which is why I had played him in the exacta. And Machito broke alertly and he's right on his flank going to the first turn and they're both probably five lengths clear of the field and they go into the backside and the Cheetos just galloping along and they head into the turn the Cheeto opens up by the time they they come out of the turn he's clear of the one and by the time they hit the wire he's in a in his own another zone oh wow and the one horse is clear of the field and my brother and I are, you know, we're just going completely bonkers. I can we're imagine. High, we're high-fiving and screaming, you know, Nachito! <laughs> Great. And these people around us are thinking, we're crazy. Go, they're thinking, this one guy goes, are you crazy? You know, that horse is 20 to 1. What are you talking about? No way. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. So, so, you know, we are... You know, we're on cloud nine and we go up to cash our tickets and we're going to go to the $50 line to cash our tickets because, you know, that's where we bought them. And, and so we walk up there and 
the old gray beard teller looked at me and he said, son, I have no idea how you came up with that. Horse. <laughs> it, was, it was a hell of a pick and I like your style. <laughs> and uh, you know, at that moment, you know, that was, I was the king of the world. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that, yeah. That's great. <laughs> So, Chris, I thought you were going to say that when you bet 100 to win, it depressed the pool, too. But 20 to 1, it, it held up, right? I mean, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure how big the pools were back then. but uh, um, It did. It, it, it did press the pool. But you have to realize this horse had like one in the money finish in his last 20 starts. Um, okay. <laughs> and it didn't show up on a sloppy track in the form. Um, so it was... It was um, it was a lot of fun. That was so. That's my big score story. So, Chris, you got to tell us now, though, what you and your brother did with your Nachito winnings when you went home that night. I hope you treated yourself to a nice dinner and a, a few few uh, alcoholic drinks. I'm sure adult beverages. Yeah, I would say that we probably wasted some of it. Uh, I don't remember exactly. <laughs> I know we we um, uh, definitely wasted some that night um, celebrating and with some friends, um, which is always the way to do it. Um, and, uh, like I said, I was, um, basically putting myself through school. So some of that money went to my, uh, you know, college education. There you go. There uh, you go. And I had an old chunky car. I was driving around and that, and I was able to do a couple of things with that. Um, so, you know, I think the money was well spent. Uh, but I think the big point of that was that that was when I knew that I, I was a horse player. I mean, that, that was the moment I knew this was something that I'll probably stay involved with for the rest of my life. Um, and until that moment, I don't think I was, that I had that feeling. So, you know, that to me is kind of a seminal moment for me as a horse player, um, uh, where I thought, you know what, um, you know, I, I can beat this game. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, I'll leave you with this thought. I, I don't know what play it's from. I think it might be from I Remember Mama, but uh, towards the end of the play, there's a, it comes out that an uncle that everyone thought was rich was actually broke. He had no money. And the relatives who had been counting on him dying and inheriting all his money said, well, what happened to all that money you had? And he said, well, I... I spent 90% of it on wine, women, and song. And they said, well, what about the other 10%? He said, oh, I wasted that. So, <laughs> so don't, <laughs> don't say you wasted it that night. But it's, it's good that it, uh, it did go to uh, some uh, productive pursuits uh, after that. That's great. That's great. That, that, and that is a great story. <laughs> I'm sure you and your brother still talk about Nichito, right? Oh, anytime uh, we get together, if there's anything to do with mud, we talk about Nichito. I mean, he's, <laughs> That's great. he's uh, it's synonymous with a horse that loves the mud in our vocabulary. <laughs> it's a great game. It's a great game, and I and I think we I think horse players are are great storytellers. Uh, so, and and that is a really good one. All right, Chris, take care, and we'll we'll talk to you soon. We'll see you soon. You bet. So finally, we're joined by our guest handicapper, Chris Mello. As I mentioned, our guest handicappers this year are going to focus on the key Kentucky Derby prep races each week as we build up to the first Saturday in May. Our handicapping segment is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Chris gave us a couple of good scores on some nice-priced horses last season, and we're hoping that in looking at the Samuel F. Davis from Tampa, he can give us another nice-priced winner, or at least a winner. Anyway, Chris, uh, this series of races at Tampa has been quite interesting over the last 12 or 15 years. I think if you go back to 
Bluegrass Cad and Street Sense. They're the ones who really elevated this series of prep races down at uh, Tampa. And now I, th- I think we've got a very competitive field here, right? Yeah, I agree, definitely. Uh, you know, looking at the race itself, um, you know, just by name and looking at the uh, past performances, there's one that probably sticks out for a lot of folks and Nick's go. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I definitely think there's plenty of options, um, you know, coming up on Saturday for the uh, Samus Davis for sure. Great. So why don't you, you walk us through uh, what you're looking at, what you think, and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll discuss. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, it's a $250,000 mile and 16th race, uh, giving out some derby points uh, for the first Saturday in May. So, uh, as I mentioned, I think if you look on paper, uh, the standout looks to be Nick's go. Uh, he's definitely the favorite. Um, he was running really well, had a really bad performance last time out, was on a sloppy track. So, you know, for those folks that think it's a complete toss, I wouldn't necessarily try to talk you off of that. Um you know, for me in this particular spot and all the different uh, options we have, what one of the things I saw, I think, is a lot of speed. Mm, um, so, agree. you know, as I go into it, you know, I'm trying to find the opportunities, uh, you know, to leverage that, at least in terms of how I think the race is going to play out. So, um, you know, while next go, I really couldn't say anything bad about or tell someone not to uh, to go that way. I ultimately went a different route. So. Um, I will definitely mention a couple of horses here. The other one on paper that I think will take a lot of money is the eight horse so alive. Um, you know, you could almost rename this race the Todd Pletcher stakes. He's won it six or seven times. The last, <laughs> I'm sure Todd you know, would be in favor of that. Yeah. <laughs> years or so. Yep. Um, you know, so I wouldn't, again, I think that's going to be one. I believe he's five to one on the morning line. Um, he's a half of Vino Rosso. I think he's going to take a lot of money. So between Nick's go and Soul Alive, that's where I see a majority of the money going. Um, you have the seven horse, five star general coming off two wins. Mm. Again, good option at four to one. Uh, and a few others, especially a couple long shots uh, that I thought had a potential to, to play a factor from a speed point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ultimately landed on the six Kentucky Wildcat. Um, not the greatest of prices. I know you mentioned uh, last season I, I got pretty <laughs> lucky with a couple uh, double-digit spots. Certainly not one of them, and I'd love to be able to do that. But, you know, for this particular race, I couldn't get to uh, to anyone outside of really the top three. Um, so he's 92 on the morning line. Um, what I found interesting, a couple things with this particular uh, horse, um, he's, he seems to be doing well with the different um, starts that he's had this year. You know, first start out, really didn't run too well. Came back at a mile and 16th. Um, I thought he faced some good competition, was a little bit wide, you know, ran a good race, ultimately broke his maiden last time out at a mile. Mm-hmm. Um, what I really liked about that performance was there was a horse coming, and the name of the horse is escaping me. Um, he ended up coming back and breaking his maiden last time out. Um, yeah, country house for Vermont, I yeah, think, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, country yep. house—that's exactly what it is. Yep. Um, what I loved about it was he did not let that horse go by him. Um, mm. You know, mm-hmm. as soon as he got up to him, you know, whether it's um, w- within a, a length of him, and you know, even half, and you know, almost eye to eye, he definitely didn't let the horse get by. You know, for me, that's a sign of a horse that's improving. You know, understanding. Uh, that he's a racehorse, and, you know, I, I like the guts that he showed in that last performance. Um, I also like the pedigree on the damn side. Um, 
Very well bred for it, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Stakes winning uh, DM that that he's out of. uh, Definitely. The interesting thing as I looked at her was the fact that she had wins, you know, at sprint distances on turf, on grass, excuse me, on dirt. So she she did well on a a lot of different surfaces. So I think, you know, all that being said, he's coming off a two-month freshening, um, consistent works for the last month or so. Uh, and, and the big factor for me is I think this is a horse that can lay off the speed. You know, the six post is, uh, I think, a good spot for him. He'll be able to be a few lengths off um, while not letting them go too far away from him and then hopefully, you know, make a move coming uh, coming around the turn for home. And uh, if all is well, hopefully that 9-2 to two actually drifts up a bit, maybe 6-1, to 7-1, and uh, we can cash a winner. You know, this, this is an interesting one. Number one, a couple of things. Um I guess I have a few thoughts. Godolphin doesn't breed to win sprints, right? I mean, this is a Godolphin horse, and and they breed to win the classics. That's really what they want to do. Whether you know they always have success or not, that's another question, right? But um, the second thing, and I think one of the big reasons why the price will drift up is that Tom Albatroni, uh, whenever he delivers a winner, it always seems to be a good priced winner, and I think it's because he never really works his horses very. Hard. I mean, there's a, there's a bullet workout in his in his line here, but it's 101 and three, right? Uh, so it's not like he's sizzling up the track or anything. I, I think he always works them uh, sedately, I guess, for lack of a lack of a better term. Um, and then the third thing that caught my eye too is uh, Joe Bravo. Look, you know th- that guy to me. Maybe it's just because he's caught my attention over the last year or so, but. He gives every horse a ride as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and maybe he's always done that, but he never really caught my eye before. Um, so if you want a jockey that's going to put a horse in a position to win, Joe Bravo is as good a choice as any, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't disagree. And You know, when I first started really diving into handicapping, I got so fixated on, you know, trainers and jockeys and you know are they the Ortiz brothers is Castellano up is it Pletcher is it Brown so on so forth at the end of the day you know those are all good things to understand you got to know what kind of trainer you have and what kind of uh, jockey you're getting on your horse Uh, but at the end of the day the horse needs talent there's going to be different tactics being played depending you know is there a lot of speed is there a horse that can run on the lead the entire way uh, around at 30 to 1 sort of thing so at the end of the day, you really got to, you know, all those things are great. And, you know, it's great to understand the different aspects of uh, the jockey and the trainers, like I said, uh, and, you know, winning percentages together. I believe in this case, Albatrani and um, Joe Bravo are hitting at 20% over the last year. If I yeah, 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 that's right. So, yeah, yeah. Know, not a bad, not a bad number. No. Um, you know, take that into consideration where I personally feel there's going to be a good number of horses, uh, you know, running uh, to the lead. Yeah. I certainly see this in the, you know, potentially uh, 23, 46, 47 area. You know, I, I think they're going to be going. Um, so I'm hoping that for this particular horse, Kentucky Wild Caddy can sit off, um, you know, make the move, be patient, and ultimately uh, run him down at the end. Well, it's kind of funny you mentioned the speed, too. Uh, the two horse going for gold, who is, <laughs> he's a sprinter. And he sprinted pretty fast up at Laurel twice, and now they're putting blinkers on him and stretching him out. So I got to believe that horse is going to go. Uh, exactly. And uh, that actually is a horse that Matt Packard mentioned last week in the Holy Bull, is you know having an outside shot at 
hitting the board. I, you know, I don't know that putting blinkers on this horse is the right uh, idea. <laughs> um, so I, that almost kind of guarantees a fast pace. And uh, I'll tell this story about Nick's, Nick's go one more time. I probably have told it before on this podcast. But uh, if you go back and look at Nick's go, I was up at Saratoga the day of the Sanford there, and I absolutely – Loved his horse, even though he was only coming off of a 17-day layoff, um, uh, 17 days from his first race. Um, I loved the way he ran it. Uh, he, he looked to me very strong in this field. 17-1, um, to 1, they open the gates, and he gets carried inward by the horse to his immediate outside the four horse, right? And race is over. He's a speed horse. You know, race, you know I was tearing up my tickets two, three seconds into the race, right? So... Uh, and I was just disgusted. It was it was a tough weekend overall, and I didn't do what I normally would have done, which is put the horse on my watch list. So they put him in the Arlington Washington Futurity next at Arlington, and he runs okay at twelve dollars. He f- flashes out the trifecta, but I didn't know about that race. And the worst thing is I didn't know about him running in the Breeders' Futurity at Keeneland when he led the field all the way around at seventy to one. <laughs> First time Lasix too, by the way. First time Lasix as well. You know, <laughs> it definitely pays to uh, to keep those horses on the watch list, especially, you know, if you look at a horse's morning line odds and, and automatically assume that, you know, those are the true odds of, you know, the horse's talent. You know, you may lose yourself out, uh, lose out on good opportunities. And I know we've talked about this during, you know, the season one of the podcast. You know, go back and watch the races and really understand what the trips look like. Um, you know, in that case, he got buried. Um, you know, it, it would have been nice definitely to get him at a 70 to one, even if it was, uh, you know, show money at that point in time, yeah. it, it would have paid for uh, a couple bets during the day for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that's exactly right. You can't, uh, you, you know, sometimes we make good reads with bad results and it's an important not to get down on yourself, right. To just kind of continue your process. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's my, that's my object lesson for every uh, listener out there is <laughs> <laughs> don't. Side of that horse, but I, I, I like the pick too. I, I, I like the pick. I think the breeding is there, um, and, I, and I actually think he will drift up north of nine to two because Albertrani horses tend to get overlooked, in my opinion, unless it's Sadler's Joy, who was <laughs> ate a lot of right. money over the last year or so, right before uh, heading off into retirement. So, exactly. Hey, Chris, that's a great pick. Thank you. Uh, we'll uh, watch the results and we'll uh, wait and uh, look and see what happens. All right. Thanks again. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate uh, the time on the podcast. If I could, just I want to throw one other thing out to the. Oh sure, yeah, go ahead. Yep. Just be on the lookout on Sunday. It's a the Saint Vincente at Santa Anita, uh, the return of Instagram. So it's not a race that gives out derby points, but uh, if everybody remembers, this was the it horse. It's won by mm-hmm. lengths and lengths. I believe the last race he had was uh, a ten and a half length winner. The owner decided to put him on the shelf, um, but obviously come derby time in the prep season, I'm sure, you know, the lore of being a triple crown w- winner uh, will will speak to him. So uh, I'm very interested uh, in seeing what Instagram does on Sunday, but it should be a good weekend and, you know, lead up to the derby. So I appreciate the uh, the time, Bill, and thanks for having me on the podcast again. All right, Chris. Thank you. We'll look at uh, both of those results and uh, we'll uh, see. We'll talk about it next week. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Can Do. I really hope you get a chance to listen next week. We're kicking off a two-part edition of our podcast focused on memories of the long-shuttered Long Acres race course in Seattle, Washington. We were able to get a number of folks to participate in a really special remembrance of a departed yet still beloved fixture in the Pacific Northwest. 
you're really going to like this very special look back at Lion Acres. But in the meantime, good luck with your plays this weekend. Good luck to everyone playing in the 2019 NHC at Treasure Island in Las Vegas. And may the horse be with you.